you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. John 20, 1 through 8, and it reads, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth laying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up on a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for your presence this morning. Thank you for your participation in this worship service, beautiful singing, which we've engaged in, and these very fervent scriptural prayers. We're thankful for that. Thankful for your presence today. If you're visiting with us, we are delighted to have you. We encourage you to come back, be with us whenever you possibly can. We'll be meeting tonight at 6 o'clock where we'll be worshiping and studying God's Word once again. We're very happy that you're with us. I hope that you see how important worship is to us, how reverent and respectful we are about our worship, how important it is for us to follow the pattern found in the New Testament, to be guided by the pages of the New Testament in what we say and what we do in worship and in life. If you have a question about anything that we may say or do today, I'd be happy to study with you. I'd like to study the Bible with you. The only stipulation I have in that is that whatever the Bible says is right. We'll go by whatever the New Testament says, because it's always right and it's never wrong. If you have a question about these particular matters, we'd like to study those matters with you. We've read today a powerful passage. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. And it's a passage which talks about the resurrected Lord. A passage which I think could be understood better if we look at that one little word you see in front of you right there, the word saw. I don't like to make a big deal out of the original words, though I think when you look at some of these original words, it helps us understand what they saw. And it can offer proof of the resurrected Christ. Now, some of the words that are used here for the word saw, I put before you. For example, in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The word for saw there is the Greek word blepo. And again, I'm not trying to make a big issue of the original word. I'm just trying to say that with some understanding and a little work here, 
we can go away with a much better understanding of what went on in John chapter 20 and the resurrected Christ. This word talks about seeing with the eyes. She saw with her eyes the tomb. Saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Notice with me verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw. Now here you have a different word. Well, this is the word, the word blepo. He saw what? The linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And then you have verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw. What did he saw? This is the word theoreo. The word theoreo means when he saw this, he's trying to see it with his mind. He's trying to put it together. To see one something with the eyes is one thing. But to try to put it together and analyze it together in the mind is another. Well, that's what he was doing in verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw. He's putting this together in his mind. He saw the linen clothes lying there. Now go on down to verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw. Well, what did he see? Well, this is the word Adon. Aden. I simply use the, the verb form here for you, Edo. It's a particular word which means to see with the mind. It's a little different from theoreo. It's a word which means when he saw this laying here, he's putting it together. Yeah, he's beginning to see what these particular matters were. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He's put it together. When he saw all these pieces together, he saw all the evidence that was available to him. Then he began to understand. Go on down to verse 12. Verse 11 tells us, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw. Well, this is our word theoreo again. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the foot. She was trying to put this together. She's trying to understand exactly what was taking place. By verse 14, you have another one of our words. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But it's theoreo there. She sees him standing there, but she's trying to figure out what's going on. She's trying to understand in her mind these particular matters that are taking place. Go to verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now this is the word horao. I have seen. I clearly understand now what's taking place. I see it. I understand it. By the time you get to verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is our word, Aden, again. 20 verses, people who saw. And each one of these incidences of the verb use gives us some special insight and understanding as to what's taking place in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is trying to give us evidence. 
evidence to help us understand and to learn and to see. I'd like to do that. I would like to be able to see. I want to be able to see what they saw. I want to be able to understand. I will see blepo with my eyes, the printed text before me. But I've got to put all of this before me in my mind and analyze it properly and deduce proper deductions from it, theoreo, to the point that I can come to a conclusion and say, I see it and I believe it, horao, I know that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. I want to be able to see that evidence. I want to be able to understand that evidence, which is given to me in the book of John, in the chapter, chapter 20, in the verses, verses 1 through 20. I want to do that. I want to see what they saw, if I possibly can. Now, when I look at John... I'm seeing three lines of evidence that is given to me here to help me see this. The three lines of evidence come to us from the gravestone to the grave clothes to the absence of the body. These are the three points that are being made. First of all, they talk about the gravestone. So you and I are going to talk about the gravestone today. We're going to talk about what, a little bit about what it was like, what I can learn from the text about the gravestone, the securing of it, the size of it. But then the grave clothes. John emphasizes that point in the story we've just read. There's something about those grave clothes. When they saw it, that this proved to them what actually had taken place. And then the absence of the body. And she says, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have taken him. Uh, The body's not there. There's something about the absence of the body that gives credibility to and lends evidence toward the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead By the power of God. Twenty great verses found in John chapter 20 that prove to me by three lines of powerful evidence that Jesus is alive today, the resurrected Lord, that he overcame the pains of death and now reigns at God's right hand. As subsequent Bible passages teach, these witnesses, pieces of evidence, when people see them, They can draw the conclusion, Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. Well, the first line of evidence, the gravestone. The gravestone's quite a silent witness, really. In fact, each of the gospel accounts talk about the matter. Matthew says the stone had been rolled away and uh, remained rolled away. Mark makes mention of the gravestone. The stone had been rolled away. Luke says the stone had been rolled away and remained rolled away. But John in John chapter 20 verse 1 adds a little piece of detail the others do not. Now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That stone had been taken away. It was a tremendous stone evidently in keeping with the burial customs of the time whereby a cave would be secured and a stone would be placed in a certain elevated position, and as time came along to secure the closing of the tomb, it would be rolled down a ramp type of affair, and it would seal shut into the tomb, and thus the tomb would be secure. There are two lines of evidence I need to see about this gravestone that John presents for me today. One is the securing of the stone, which I've just mentioned for you. I want to learn more about that. Now, by Matthew chapter 27, 
you're going to see that the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the cross came to Pontius Pilate and they said, now look, we know that he's talked about uh, being raised from the dead and all that sort of thing. Let's go secure the gravestone. And by doing that, we'll make sure that there's no possibility of any uh, conspiracy to take the body because if he is stolen or something happens, why, well, this will be worse than it was to begin with. And Pilate, listening to the Jewish leaders at the time, said, go ahead and make it as secure as you can. In Matthew chapter 27, he said in verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the stone secure by sealing the stone and by setting a guard. And there may be some question as to the kind of guard that was set there. Maybe it was a Roman soldier. Text kind of leads us to believe it might have been temple police, it might have been Roman soldiers. I rather choose to think that he's talking about the Roman soldiers here, and he's saying you have them at your disposal. Now you can make that grave as secure as you possibly can. You get uh, and seal it, and in turn you have soldiers there that will guard the tomb. And so they did. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Now to seal the stone simply means that the Roman seal was placed on the stone. The Roman seal was affixed to some ropes or some leather thongs and, and, ever, and the, a clay tablet was there in the middle of it. And the impression of the emperor, the seal of Rome, was placed on the clay tablet and the stone was sealed. To break the seal breaks Roman law. This has been sealed. No one's allowed to break the Roman seal, and of course Pontius Pilate could, a Roman official could, but no uh, mere individual, soldier otherwise, could break the Roman seal. But then you add to that the fact that you have two guards there, most likely Roman guards, and you have these men who are highly trained and specialized in killing. They're really killing machines, and they're trained to handle anything that comes within a six-foot square of where they are. And so anything that comes in their perimeter, anything that comes in their area, they're trained to kill it. And they're highly skilled. They're sort of the, um, the rangers, the army rangers of the day, or the navy seals of the day, or whoever special ops type individual you might think. These guys are really trained at killing. And from what I read and what I've seen, I think they enjoyed it. I think they were a kind of men who were anxious for a scrap and ready to fight. And they enjoyed it. So you got two of these guys standing there, right, with the Roman seal. But yet, who moved the stone? We got a secure stone here. This stone, and by ancient standards, was set, ready to be placed. A cleat would be placed in front of the stone. They'd remove the stone. The stone would roll down the incline and then with a thud fall into place. And it's secure. It's secure with the Roman seal. It's secure with Roman guards. And when you look at the scene, there's no evidence of any altercation at the scene. Somebody said, well, the the apostles came and they stole the body. How are they going to... overcome these Roman soldiers. There's no blood there. There's no altercation. There's no sign of any scuffle. The apostles do not have any broken bones or bruises. They have not been battered. There is no evidence that anything like that particular matter actually took place 
but yet the stone is moved. And the question, the haunting question is, who moved the stone? The size of the stone enters into this particular picture. In Mark chapter 16 and 4, Mark says the stone was very large. Sometimes in ancient times, two stones were placed in a type of a sepulcher such as this. You'd have the larger stone that was placed in the opening of the sepulcher. Then a smaller stone was placed up against that, offering support to the larger stone. There is... Um, a second century manuscript. Now, you and I know we've studied the manuscripts together, haven't we? And we enjoy studying these manuscripts. There is a scribal gloss in a second century manuscript. A scribal gloss is where the scribe is writing down the uh, passage that the uh, reader is giving in the scriptorium. He's sitting in his area in the scriptorium, and there copying down the scriptures, and the reader reads. And you and I have studied all those particular matters. And a, a scribal gloss is kind of a note in the margin. And it's not in the text itself. It's not a part of the text. The gloss is in the margin where the scribe has placed some comment or something like that in the margin of the text. And in the margin of the text of the second century manuscript is at this particular point, a scribe adds this to the margin with regard to the size of the stone which 20 men could not move. Now, that's not a part of the text, that's not a part of the Bible, but this scribe saw the need to add that to the margin. You know, I have a Bible here, and you and I make notes in the margin of our Bible, and we know that that's not a part of the Bible itself, but it's a, it's a marginal note that kind of helps me understand and helps me remember or leads me to something else in the pages of the Bible. And I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to take those notes and underline those words and circle those verbs and help us understand the text as much as we possibly can. This particular scribe saw the need to say the stone was so large 20 men could not move it it was a large stone it is a stone secured by Roman seal by Roman guard large in size yet now it's been moved if you'll notice in Matthew chapter 28, the reading continues there. Now, after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. That's how the stone was moved. An angel from heaven came and rolled that stone back. And I get the idea, he sat on the stone, almost as if he's watching the proceedings that are to take place. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Then in Matthew 28 and 4, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's what happened to the guards. Guards weren't succumbed by apostles or... Jews or thieves, they were overcome by the angel of the Lord that came down and removed the stone. And when they experienced that, they fell to the ground as if they were dead. John in John chapter 20 says, one line of evidence is the stone. 
And when she saw, she was trying to put all that together in her mind. The stone has been removed. Now John adds a second piece of evidence there you and I need to consider rather carefully, and that's the grave clothes. Not only was there the matter of the grave stone, but John directs our attention to the grave clothes. And there was something about those grave clothes when they saw that, that in turn led them to see and believe. Now, if you'll notice in about verse 6, this is our text now, John chapter 20. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw. And now, what's the question? He saw what? He saw the linen clothes lying there. The linen clothes is what he happened to see. When he saw this, verse 7, And the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place uh, by itself. Uh, He begins to grasp what's going on here by verse 8. Aden, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. So he's figured it out. He's grasped what is going on. And what is it that they saw that caused them to grasp this particular event and the things that were related thereto, uh, the grave clothes. There was something about those grave clothes that when they saw, they realized that a great miracle has taken place here. Peter saw them laying there. Merrill C. Tinney has written a rather good book, I think, on the survey of the New Testament. You may want to avail yourself of that. Tinney is a very popular writer. This is a statement which he makes. Jews of Jesus' day would be wrapped in this linen cloth from the arms to the feet. Spices would be wrapped with the clothes or the claws which acted as a preservative. And what they're saying is that as a method of the burial and culture of the time, they would wrap them in these grave clothes, but they would also anoint the body with spices. And the spices worked in a dual type of purpose. It worked as a kind of preservative with regard to the body and its decomposition, and also kind of an adhesive with regard to the grave clothes. And this was a very normal thing in that day and time to be buried. But now when they saw the grave clothes, they realized this is not a theft here. If it had been a theft, the grave clothes would have been gone with the body. If it had been a theft, they would have taken the grave clothes right along with the body. But the grave grave clothes are right there. And if we took some time to analyze the original language a little more deeply, we could see that the grave clothes were laying perfectly in place. And when John talks about this in John chapter 20, he emphasizes the grave clothes. And when they saw the grave clothes, they saw, why they're laying perfectly in place, as if a body once was there, but now not there. You remember one of my old heroes, uh, and I hope you don't misunderstand my point. It's just an illustration. One of my old heroes, I followed this guy for years. His name's Superman. I read him in the comic strips. I watched the movies. He had a TV series every week that came on. Uh, This modern-day movie series about Superman, I don't go for that so much. That's not the real Superman. The real Superman, you know, back in the comic strips when I was a boy, and I'd read that in the newspapers and the comic strips. That's the real Superman right there in the comic books. I think I had every Superman comic book that was out there. And you know what Superman would do? He'd run into that phone booth, 
and he'd tear his clothes off. And underneath those clothes, he had that big letter S. And he had that Superman suit on. And he'd go out and he'd get the bad guys. And he'd do it just right, too. Superman knew how to do it. You don't have that here. The grave clothes are not ripped. They're not torn. They're laying perfectly in place as if a body had been there. But the body's not there. Then he makes mention of this face cloth, a napkin type of thing, which went over the face. And evidently, the face cloth had been placed by itself at another position. Yet there's no head there. Perhaps Jesus, when resurrected, took the face cloth and folded it and laid it over there at the side. Whatever took place there, when they saw the grave clothes, they understood a miracle has taken place here. And John includes that particular information for us so that we can understand and see for ourselves the resurrected Christ. Now, not only is there the grave clothes, as I mentioned earlier, and not only is there the grave stone, the size of it, and the securing of it in his place, but there's also this a matter of the absent body, and that John directs our attention to as well, the absence of the body of Christ. This becomes a very important matter. Gospel writers emphasize this point. Matthew and Mark say in their account that an angel says to Mary, you seek Jesus he is not here. Then in Luke, he says, Why seek ye the living among the dead? But in John, he says it in verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. The body's not there. And I do not know where they have laid him. The body's gone. Now this becomes a piece of evidence that John begins to talk about the matter. And he tries to explain to us about the absence of the body. And it's a powerful piece of evidence. For one would naturally expect there to be a body. One would naturally expect to be some evidence with regard to the body. All we have as to a body was there with regard to the grave clothes. But there is no body. To explain this in strictly natural means. Some have come up with what's called the hallucinating theory. They were trying to say that the apostles were hallucinating about Jesus when they saw Jesus and when she saw Jesus. She's hallucinating. She's really not seeing Jesus here. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, verse 14, standing there. And their naturalistic kind of explanation for that is, well, she's just hallucinating. And the apostles, there's some 12 or 13 different post-resurrection appearances conveyed for us in the pages of the New Testament. And with those, the naturalistic kind of things have tried to say, well, it's just hallucinating upon the part of the disciples. But you have some of these appearances of Jesus. It just can't be. Hallucinating just can't be the explanation. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there Paul writing to the church at Corinth in that wonderful passage about the resurrection He says, now he appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. Some of them are still alive here. And so it just is not reasonable at all for them to say that 500 people at one time are seeing the same hallucination. It's just not reasonable. Hallucinating is not going to be a plausible explanation as to the resurrected body and the 
absence of the body. Now, a very popular theory that's come up in some denominational quarters is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory, if you haven't come across that term before, is the idea that Jesus crucified on the cross, brutalized by Roman guards, the fainted form of the Lord was taken down and laid in the tomb. And then the coolness of the tomb, he revives. He didn't really die. Mary Baker Eddy in her commentaries used that very term, swoon. They took the fainted form of the Lord down from the cross. You see, their view is death is not real. Suffering is an illusion. You don't really suffer. Death is not a real objective experience. It is an illusion. And so when it comes to the matter of the death of Jesus Christ, why she doesn't believe in it? They took down the fainted form of the Lord. John in the book of Revelation says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one that was dead, who died, and now lives again. Well, the swoon theory just won't hold water because, you know, even if Jesus had gone through that, how's he going to remove the stone? You know, here's a man who's gone through six hours of suffering on the cross in the hot sun. Prior to that, he's been brutalized by Roman soldiers. The scourging that Jesus went through, why it tore the tissue and it destroyed the, the, the tendons. It sometimes disemboweled the victim because of the brutality of that form of persecution. Now here this man has gone through all of that. He carries his cross all the way up the Via Della Rosa. The Via Della Rosa is a little narrow way called the Way of the Cross. And there he's compelled to carry the burden of his own cross. And then for six hours he hangs on the cross. He's taken down for dead, laid in the tomb. This is not going to add up. The swoon theory is not going to make sense because this man has suffered such brutality and suffering, seen to be dead by Roman centurions and guards. He in turn is laid in the tomb and all of a sudden he revives. It's unreasonable, irrational to take a point like that and to say that he can... This man in such a weakened condition, near-death condition, he can move the stone, a stone that would take some 20 men to move, uh, or, or overcome two guards, Roman centurions, some Roman guards like that. It's unreasonable to take to the view of the swoon theory. Three days later, he revives, and he's able to do all that. The popular view was he was stolen. Now, this is the going view at the time, Matthew chapter 28. They tried to... Uh, saying, uh, hey, we've got to do something here. So they, the Jews bribe the guards, and they say, lie about it. Lie that Jesus was stolen, the body of Jesus. You see, the absence of the body is compelling evidence that's got to be answered. We cannot answer it by any logical, reasonable means. The hallucination theory doesn't work. The swoon theory will not follow. The stolen theory. Let's think about that just for a minute. How is it that the body was stolen? Could the apostles have stolen the body? I think we've already eliminated that possibility as we looked at the matter of apostles overcoming these Roman guards. How that there was no evidence of an altercation at the scene. The apostles are not damaged physically speaking in any way. The apostles could not steal, have stolen the body. 
Well, maybe the Jews stole the body. They came in and overcame the, the guards and they removed the stone. And the Jews stole the body. But why would they do that? They bribed the guards to say it was stolen to begin with. Why would they do that? They went to Pilate and said, you know, we want to make sure this body is not stolen. He said, make it as secure as you can. You have guards. Put your guards there and see that nothing happens to it. And add to that the fact that when Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up in Acts chapter 2 and says, Jesus has been raised from the dead. If the Jews had stolen the body, all they'd had to do is stand up and say, well, wait a minute. He wasn't raised from the dead. We stole the body. We got the body of Jesus right here, right now. They couldn't do it. The body is gone. And there's no reasonable explanation for it other than a miracle took place by the power of God. And John says, I want you to see what they saw. I want you to put it together with your mind. I want you to analyze it and figure this and believe like we believe when we saw it with our very eyes. There's a woman by the name of Jemima Wilkinson. Have you ever heard of Jemima? She was raised as a uh, Quaker in uh, Rhode Island, 1752. Uh, she claimed, she's a very religious lady, she claimed that she had been raised from the dead. So she claimed this for herself. Now here's a person that claimed resurrection. Jemima Wilkinson, very religious Quaker lady. You know what she did one time? She walked up to this lake up there. She's from Rhode Island. And she had her followers who actually believed she had been raised from the dead. And so she says, how many of you believe that I can walk on water just like Jesus did? Well, all her followers raised their hands and said, yeah, we believe. She says, well, there's no sense in me doing it then. Y'all already believe. And she walked away and didn't walk on the water. That's Jemima Wilkinson. Didn't walk on the water, didn't try to because all of them believed already. Well, she left very strict orders and instructions upon her death that she would be uh, left there in state because at age 68, God's going to raise her from the dead. And so they left her, as per her instructions, and the people waited and waited and waited, and Jemima Wilkinson was not raised from the dead. And her body begins to decompose, and her following disintegrates because she can't be raised from the dead. She's not a Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead, but she wasn't. She's not going to be. You see, that's the claim, the claim of Christianity, the foundation plank the bedrock of our faith. It's on this matter the resurrected Christ. And it is historically verifiable when we see what they saw. We'll go away with faith that Jesus is the Son of God, raised from the dead by the power of God. You know, been a lot of discussion about where the empty tomb is. And scholars are not really sure where the actual site is. There's this uh, 
supposed site, there's that supposed site. We don't know exactly where the supposed site of the tomb would be. And those are interesting things to consider. Now, if we're involved in Judaism today, we'd ask, well, where is the beginning of your faith? And the one who really made it possible. And they'd point to a cave called Machpelah. And say, Abraham, our father, is buried in that grave right there. Or if we were to ask a Muslim today, as to the foundation of his faith, his religion, he'd go back to Medina. And there he'd say, well, right there is where our foundation begins, right there. And the founder of that religion is still there. Just like Abraham's in the grave of Machpelah, so Muhammad is in the grave in Medina. Or the Buddhist, where is the foundation of your faith? Or he'd point to the remains of his buried ancestor there. That would be the remains, that would be the place where his faith would be founded. But to the Christian. There is no grave that I can point to and say that's where he is. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. Praise God for the great power of God. That he would raise him from the dead. And that these are historical facts. And that we can look at them and learn. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. The great fact of the matter is you and I are going to be raised from the dead. The Bible talks about a resurrection, they that have done good unto eternal life, and they that have done evil unto eternal condemnation. Because Christ was raised from the dead, I'm going to be raised from the dead one great day. But what will that resurrection day yield for me? Will it be a day of great rejoicing because I was obedient to the gospel of Christ, and I saw the evidence, and I obeyed God's word by repenting of sin, confessing my faith in Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. By being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, it'll be a great day of joy when I'm raised from the dead. But if I've never obeyed the gospel of Christ or have not been faithful to the gospel of Christ, it'll be a day of great sadness and sorrow. There's a great day coming. There was a great day when these Bible characters were able to see, as they saw these historical facts, there's a great day coming when we're going to be raised. Will it be to walk with God and Christ or to suffer eternity in a devil's hell? That choice is up to us now. The availability is there to enjoy the blessings of the blood of Jesus Christ by repenting of sin and by being baptized into Christ, immersed in water for the remission of our sins, Romans 6, 4 through 6. Living the Christian life, Romans chapter 12. Or to live for ourselves and face our God in judgment 
and be cast away in eternal condemnation. That's our choice. Doesn't seem like to me to be much of a choice. Choose Christ. Choose the gospel. Obey the resurrected Christ. And do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.